Has anybody been whitewater rafting before? Yeah? Fun? Good? You go like down some pretty rough waters? Anybody ever gone whitewater rafting where it's like boring and there's actually no white water anywhere? You just kind of float? It's more like a... Well, yeah. It's, yeah, you just, it's kind of floating. It's just kind of river, whatever. Anyways, so there was a, a time in my uh, younger years where for some reason I, I went whitewater rafting a ton. Um, youth group, did a bunch of things. And so uh, there was one trip in particular that stood out to me. I was, um, I was probably 12, 13 years old, and we were on one of those bigger boats. So you have like six or eight people on each side, and the guide is in the back. And uh, it was actually, we saw white water. So the guide was saying, hey, up, up coming ahead, we're going to go through this a uh, little bit more of an intense portion of the time. So just be aware and get ready to go. So I'm, I'm sitting here, little, little fat Justin is all ready to go and super excited. And so we're, and all I remember is there's a part that was like a, like a swoop to the right. And along the back side was this ledge of rocks. And so I'm back by the guide on the left side. And we're going and we're having a good time. And they put me probably in the back because they know pe people in the back aren't going to do anything really. They just kind of look like they're helping, but they're not really helping. And so I'm just thinking I'm doing all this great stuff. And all of a sudden, we hit this really big, intense bump. And in the bump, I remember sitting down, bouncing, and feeling like I was going to be going backwards out of the raft. And all I remember is seeing that ledge of rocks and thinking, oh my, my brain is about to be on those. Just all in a split second. And so as I was bouncing and go, starting to go back, the guide who was right next to me grabbed me and made sure I didn't go flying out of the raft and, and kept me in. Was it fun? Of course it was fun. Was there a little bit of uh, danger? Oh, absolutely. For a little 12-year-old, I thought I was, my life was about to end. Was this a difficult thing? Yeah. There was, there was something that I was doing that I was not comfortable with. I needed somebody else to help me. But could it have been worse than it ended up being? Absolutely. I could have not had the guide right there. And if it wasn't for the presence and the knowledge of the guide that was able to hold on to me and to protect me, things could have been much more worse and I may not have been here today. And so as we finish up this last portion of the Lord's Prayer, this verse that says, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one, as we'll see, what we're going to see is that in the midst of life's temptations, trials, and testings, and in the midst of the enemy's attacks, our Father protects us from worse with the promised presence of Jesus. So let's look at this first portion. Lead us not into temptation. Now, to be honest, this was racking my brain. Remember, this is the Lord's Prayer, or known as the Disciples' Prayer, and he's giving us a model for how we are to pray. This is how we should pray. So why in the world is Jesus telling us, instructing us, guiding us, modeling for us to not have the Father tempt us? Like why in the world is that going on? So does that mean 
that God can tempt us. So if we're praying to God to not tempt us or to not lead us in temptation, does that mean that he could tempt us? Now, this is one of those tricky things because we also see elsewhere in James chapter 1, verse 13, um, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So this is what we do know about this passage. We do know that when it thinks of temptation, we know that God is not the one who's tempting of us. And a lot of this comes down to how we come to understand the word temptation and what it actually means. When we uh, come to difficult parts of Scripture, like this passage, lead us not into temptation, when we come to interpreting it and coming to an understanding of what it actually means, the best way to interpret Scripture is to go to Scripture itself. Okay? We believe that this is 66, a collection of 66 books, um, writings, letters that have human authorship that are written to a specific people at a specific place at a specific time. And to come to understand that, we have to know that. But we also believe that this is written by God himself, that this is God-breathed, as 2 Timothy 3 says. And so if we come to a passage that's difficult, we want to look at how all the scriptures talk about this topic to come to an understanding of what it means. So what does temptation mean? I'm going to give us three different ways that this word can be understood and unpack each of those. The first one is literally temptation, which is, if I can capture what temptation is, that's solicitation towards evil to be drawn towards evil, to have somebody actively trying to bring you to do something that is not in line with God. Now, this is what we do know. This passage does not tell us that God tempts us. We know that because of what James already said. So if we're saying, hey, Father, do not, um, do not tempt us, well, we don't have to pray that because James says that God is not the one who tempts us. And I'm going to go on a little bit more in uh, James 1 and these next two verses, 14 and 15. It says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So what is temptation? Well, James says it's not necessarily only something that comes from outside. It's actually something that's still within us. There's part of us that Scripture says that is even those that have professed faith in Jesus, even those that have been cleansed of their sins, we still wrestle with parts of our being that does not want to obey God, that still wants to rebel, that still wants to get our own way. This is why I'm always weary when people say, just follow your heart. It's a very common wisdom of our day and age right now. Just follow your heart. If you want something, you deserve it, right? I mean, it's in your heart. It automatically must be a good thing. So whatever that may be, just go after that. Get what you want. But scriptures tell us that's not good either. Because within us, there is, we are drawn towards things that 
we are tempted by our own sinful nature towards things that are opposed to God. So when we think of this passage about lead us not to temptation, when we're praying this to God, what we're saying in essence is, Father, protect me from my own sinful nature. I have parts of me that don't want to follow you. I want to do my own thing. I want what I want, and that's not uh, with what you want. So, Father, don't get me in an environment where I'm tempted by my own flesh to walk away from you, to rebel against you. That we need God even to know what we should and should not follow within ourselves. This is what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 10. It says this in verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So every time you have a moment when you desire something that's not in accordance with Scripture or not in accordance with what God has designed for you, what this prayer is saying and what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 10 is you have, there is not only a way out, but we need his help to do it. We need him to be our guide that's holding us from the shoulder and making sure we don't hurt ourselves. We need his protection. We need his guidance and we need his desires within us. So if one angle of this passage is understanding of temptation. The second one is of testing. So lead us not into temptation could be translated, lead us not into testing. So what do I mean by testing? This is where we are put um, in an environment where we either submit to God or we don't. If temptation is the solicitation towards in in, in that environment, The testing is being put in an environment. Because here's the thing, we know that this does happen. This is something that the Lord does in us. We are put in environments where we have to rely on him to obey him. What this does not mean is that every time you experience a testing that you're experiencing a spiritual attack. I come from an environment where uh, much more leaned in, and we're going to start talking about the evil one in a second, so this is, we're going to balance this out in a moment. But I come from an environment where uh, we would gather in this big gymnasium, and there was a hot water heater that, would, um, that was just in the, a closet right here. And out of nowhere, sometimes that hot water heater would make these like racketing sound and, and just kind of disrupt everything. But the environment was one where it's like we rebuke that spirit in the name of Jesus, where there was a devil under everything, that there must be an, a, a personal attack at every single time you're tested or every single time you could follow or not follow God. Um, and the reality is sometimes just hot water heaters need to be fixed. You know, sometimes it's not like the spirit or the spirits needing to be rebuked. Sometimes there's just things that need to be done. Things weren't done right in the first place. And so when we're asking God to not test us, 
We're not always saying, God, don't get those spirits away from me. Get that away. That's not what's happening. Sometimes God himself leads us into environments where we either choose to rebel or not to rebel. Now, this is not tempting, and this is where nuance is needed in understanding Scripture because God does not tempt, but he does put us in environments where we're tested. We see this in the life of Jesus. Right after Jesus is baptized in Matthew chapter 3, the Spirit comes upon him. What happens? The, the voice of the Father says, this is my Son who I'm well pleased the, he, uh, the Spirit comes and dwells upon him. And right in the next verse, what happens? Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, that the Spirit led him into the desert to be tempted by the devil. So did the Spirit lead him to testing? Yes. Did the Spirit tempt him? No. How does that work? You know, when we get to passages like this, this is what's difficult to understand. Think of it like two parts of a roof. The, both parts are necessary. Both parts are important. Both parts are true. And sometimes they just meet a little bit above our head that we don't understand it. Does God test? Yes. Does God tempt? No. Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When we are praying this prayer in line of the idea of testing, it's very much like temptation, saying, God, don't put me in an environment that is too hard for me to follow you. I need your help. Don't test me more. Now, what this isn't saying is, God won't give you more than he, you can handle because he does give you more than you can handle regularly. It's called waking up every morning, following him every single day in the, 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 what seems as not important things of life. You need him in that moment. So what we're praying is, God, I don't, Father, you are a good guide. I'm relying on you. Don't put me in a place that's too hard, that's going to test me, that's going to break me. I need your help there. So if it's temptations, if it's uh, testings, the third way to understand this is to think about it in trials. And when I think of trials, a simple way of understanding this is pain or difficulty in life. A helpful translation of this um, passage, one of the ways that some of them put it is, quote, save us from the time of trial. So lead us into temptation could be understood as save us from the time of trial. This, it's important to remember, this passage comes in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. As we'll talk about next week when we look at the Beatitudes intently, what the, beati- or the sermon begins with these statements about blessed are those, or literally flourishing are those who. And who is Jesus speaking to in this sermon? The, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, which literally means powerless, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
So what is the type of posture that is not only flourishing in God's kingdom, but the type of person that God is speaking, or Jesus is speaking to in this passage? Those that are experiencing ex- uh, intense levels of pain in their life. Difficulty, wrestling, struggles. How I've come to understand this passage and this prayer is God, life is already hard. Protect us from it being any harder. Uh, as most of you know, uh, we were able to uh, get away, just Darian and I, for about six days. Um, and we got a trip to Cabo. It was a beautiful, uh, wonderful time. But uh, a lot of the reason why we took that in the middle of February, because it's been a pretty intense six months for us. Um, and so Darianne going on vocal rest in July or August kind of started it. And then we sold our house, which was a stressful thing. Then we remodeled the house, and we had 17 days to remodel the house. And that was a very intense emotion. And it was put on by myself, and most of you helped me, so thank you with that. But it was, it was really, really stressful. 16-hour days every day for 17 days, just trying to get the job done. And then, as most of you know, on day 50, oh, and sorry, let me back up. In the middle of that, our kids were having a really, really hard time with moving. Like, the fighting, the, like, Dad, we, I don't want to move. Why are you doing this to me? Lots of anxiety around that. And so as a father, that's tough. And then day 15 of a 17-day remodel, most of you know, my friend Randy, who was leading so much coma, took his own life. So I'm literally at Best Buy getting stuff. Josh is at, the, at my house putting in cabinets. We didn't get the stuff we needed to put our gas stove in. And I get a call from a friend telling me that a friend of mine took his own life. And, oh, just the pain of that. And then finishing it. And then the difficulty of leading Soma Tacoma in the midst of this and the grieving. And then thinking you're at the end of the tunnel. And then there's difficulty and pain and frustrations with our own church. And it's like, oh, I'm, I feel weak. I feel like, this, is there more coming? Now, I'm going to pause. This is in my notes, but I feel like I need to say this. A lot of, and Chris and I were talking about this last night. A lot of times when we start thinking about trials and our own pains and our own difficulties, we start to compare them to other people's. Like, oh, but, and this is my way of saying it. Yeah, but all this is first world problems. This can't be that bad. I mean, this is all. I know people that have had it way worse than me. So, that makes my pain, my trial, my difficulty illegitimate. So I don't, get, I don't have a right to feel what I feel because in comparison to what they've gone through, it's nothing. Okay? So that's something that I had to walk through. So here I am on vacation experiencing this beautiful, beautiful view. Um, and I've discovered there's three stages of trips and vacations. The first stage is um, decompression, where you're like a couple days where you just need to like exhale. Then there's replenishment, where it's like, okay, let's actually fill the tank again. And for me, there's a third stage of like vision, excitement, desire. Let's get hit the ground running again. So I was in stage one when um, a couple days in, and I felt the the spirit lead me. And so I I went out into the beach and I just had my journal and I just started listing all the things that were hard. Just like, just write it in your journal. 
Just what's hard right now? What are you sad about? Um, I was in a place where, uh, have you seen the movie Inside Out? Uh, for those of you who are parents, uh, Inside Out, there's a, it's a genius movie. There's these uh, memories that are like little balls, and joy is kind of the dominant one in this, this girl's head. And there's all these emotional characters that are leading this girl. And so joy is the dominant one, and so there's these primary memories that are filled with joy. And joy's job is trying to protect these memories from sadness. Sadness is just kind of the melancholy, woe is me, kind of emo character of the movie. And, but at the end of the movie, what ends up happening is, is that she realizes that every memory that has joy in it also has sadness in it. Okay? And so that the memories are actually both joyful and sad at the same time. Okay? I was in a place that more sadness was happening than joy. That everything had a little bit of blue and gloom to it. I, if I'm fully honest, even at our five-year celebration... I was so excited. I was so happy. But I was just like, uh, I'm done. Just like, get me out of here. So I'm on the beach, writing all the sad stuff out. And I felt the spirit say, you know what, Justin? It's okay to be happy. And I was like, what? Like, you're supposed to like, like, I don't know what you're supposed to do, but that's not what you're supposed to say in this moment. But something shifted in me. Well, it's like, yeah, this stuff's sad. And you know what? Even in the midst of that, it's okay to be happy. Like we sang the song, the joy of the Lord is my strength. In the midst of, Father, lead me, not save me from times of trial. It's relying on the guide that is the one who brings us joy. It's not manufactured. It's not like, oh, I'm supposed to be happy, so I'm just going to pretend to be happy until I'm actually happy. It's like, no, there's a joy that comes from the Father who is our guide. And so I'm writing all this stuff that's sad, and it's like, okay, it's time to be happy. It's okay to be happy. And it's like, oh, okay. So that shifts me. And kind of get a little more relaxed, get a little bit more loose, and then I get to the end of the week. We're like probably Thursday, Friday now. And we come back on Saturday, right? And so I felt the Spirit again lead me out onto the beach. And here I am feeling first world problems. Woe is me. But like, no, I have to engage. This is an important thing for me to do. And at the end of it, it says, you know, Justin, it's also okay to be sad. It's not like an either or thing. We're in the midst of all of our trials and pains and difficulties that, yes, it's okay to be joyful in the midst of them, but you know what? It's okay to feel sad about things. That's not lack of faith. That's not us accusing God that he is not a good dad. It's just the reality that life sucks. And here's the thing. As I know most, many of your stories what you've had to endure and what you are currently enduring and what you're currently feeling and experiencing is way beyond anything that I could understand sometimes. Like, it's hard. Our cultural narrative 
is that life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. That all of life is supposed to be happy, right? You're supposed to be happy all the time. You're supposed to be experiencing joy. Yes. And so happiness. And then what are the, if happiness is the norm, when you feel suffering or pain or difficulty, or you're experiencing the effects of a broken world, those are the exceptions to the rule. And so you just need to get through that. You need to go around that pain because you don't really, that's getting in the way of your happiness. So get back to the norm, which is happy. But I don't think that's what scriptures necessarily teach us. The scripture, and this isn't like a Debbie Downer, but this is us to rely on our guide. Life is predominantly difficult. It's sad. It's broken. Your difficulty with your parenting, with your friends, with your marriages, with people that you've lost and that you're mourning. There's suffering in this world. What did that Peter passage say? Don't be surprised when it comes upon you as if something strange were happening to you. Life's hard. It's painful. It's difficult. And so instead of it being the norm of happiness, the honest view of the world is also, you know what, actually, if I really was honest with myself, I'd look around and I'd probably feel sad about more things. Because things are hard. It's okay to be happy and it's okay to be sad. So what is this amazing passage telling us? God, save me from making it more hard. Like, protect me. Like, do we have a view of God that, like, God's looking to make things harder on you? Like, oh, it's already hard. So this, I have to ask this God, I have to pray to him to not make it harder because he's vindictive and he's evil and he's trying to make it as difficult as possible. No. This is a story of a father who is worthy and holy and loving and generous to us. And we're asking that good, gracious, glorious, loving Father to guide us and to make sure we don't go out of the raft. To make sure that we have him. And what it's not saying, it's not saying take it away from me. What it's saying is God be there in the midst of it. I've I'm coming to discover more and more that the prayer and the the purpose of the Christian life is to not get the works of Jesus on our behalf. It's to experience the person of Jesus in the midst of it all. The big picture is loving him, walking with him, being with him, allowing him to fill us. And what he's done on our behalf in our place allows for that to happen. And here's the thing, and this is that last portion of this passage. It says, deliver us from evil. We do have a personified, loving, gracious Father that guides us. And we also have an enemy who is hell-bent and aggressively and antagonistic trying to make your life worse than it already is. So while this passage says, deliver us from evil, you can even look at the footnote, and most of them say, deliver us from the evil one. 
that evil isn't just the state of being. It's not just the water or it's not, it's not just in the air, but there is actually a, uh, a personified um, aggressive antagonist. He, elsewhere, he's called Satan, or he's also known as the accuser. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. What is Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Look at the devil, personified. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We don't talk about this too much because part of it is we don't want to be seen, known as the place that sees the devil under everything. And there is a reality that there we have an enemy that is bent on our destruction. Does that mean everything going on in life is his fault? Not necessarily. Is there, does that mean it could be my sinful flesh? Yes. The way I've kind of come to describe it is I don't know if this is the enemy. I don't know if it's my flesh. I don't know if it's just the ways of the world. Whatever it is, I don't need to parse out exactly what the source is. I just know I need to rely on the Father to help me through it. This prayer is a prayer of God. Father, my guide, deliver us, lead us away from, get us out of and from the grasps of the evil one. And if we look at this, if we look at temptations and testings and trials and the attack of the evil one, you and I, if we're honest with ourselves, would know that we probably fail more times than we succeed. In the moments of temptation, we are drawn towards evil and commit them. In seasons of testing, we don't do what we're supposed to. We do the opposite. In in the difficulties of life, we don't rely on the Father as our guide. We, maybe you strap up by your bootstraps and just do it on your own, or you just give up and just say, I'm just gonna, it's just gonna, is what it is. But the, the amazing thing about the Lord's Prayer and the Sermon on the Mount is, in general is that it gives us almost a table of contents of the life of Jesus. So what does Jesus do with temptations. Well, the beautiful thing is right before this, when he was led into the desert, the the enemy, the evil one, came and tempted him, and he was the only person who have ever lived that did not fall into temptation. uh, Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us or with our weaknesses, but one in, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When you fall into temptation, Jesus has already defeated that on the cross because he is the one who did not fall into temptation. 
When it comes to testing, when you and I tend to fail the test, Jesus always passed through them. Best seen in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's um, praying, God, take this away from me. Let this cup pass from me. He's tested there to see if he's going to obey or disobey. But what does he say? Not my will, but your will be done. When it comes to uh, trials and pain and difficulty in life, did he give up or did he always rely and follow the Father? We know that he followed the Father. And lastly, when it comes to the evil one, what did he do with the evil one? He defeated him. On the cross, in his resurrection, when the enemy thought that he had won, Jesus rose again victorious. So the very enemy that's like a roaring lion trying to devour us is also the one who has no power and authority over us because Jesus sealed that on our behalf. Ephesians 1.21 Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he, the Father, put all things under his Jesus' feet and gave him over, head over all the things, which is the church. What does that mean? Everything is under the feet of Jesus. He has defeated the enemy. He has, he has got, done away with him, and so he has no power anymore. And one day... All these things, all the temptations, the trials, the testing, and the presence of the evil one will be fully done away with when the new heavens and the new earth come. Like, that's good news. One day is coming that will not be as painful and trying and hard as it is. That's why it's called our hope. Because it's what anchors us to know that in the midst of it, we have a father who's guiding us who's already been victorious over it. So he knows, he experienced, he's walked with, and he's victorious over all of these things. So when you are tempted, Jesus has been tempted in that way, and yet he didn't follow it. Now he's given you his spirit to walk in his ways. When you're tested, when you're put in an environment to obey or disobey, you are also now given the spirit to walk out of that, and he's changing our hearts. When you're experiencing the pains and difficulties of life and the trials that there is, you have a father who loves you, and you have a savior who empathizes with you. He knows personally what you are walking through. And when you're experiencing spiritual attack, when you have a, an enemy that's coming after you, you have a Savior who is protecting you from that because he's victorious over it. Will we experience these things in life? Yeah, we will. And yet our hope is in the future. And it's a promised hope. It's a guaranteed hope because of what Jesus did on the cross and why we go to the table. We go to the table as a reminder of his body being broken for us. We go to the table and we take the cup as a reminder of his blood being shed for the forgiveness of our sins. When we think of the enemy, the enemy crushed Jesus on the cross. 
but Jesus was victorious over him when he rose again from the dead. When we think about his body being broken, that's what we remember. When we think about his blood being shed, when we think about the times that we've been tempted and we fail, when we think of trials that, we've, that we don't um, follow him, when we think of testings, we can know that we have been forgiven of all of our sins because his blood has been shed on your and my behalf. And so I go to the table to take a physical reminder what Jesus physically did on my behalf. My sins are forgiven. His body was broken, so mine won't eternally be. And I go there as a reminder of that, but also to continually say, God, I need you. I, I need, I'm placing my faith in you right now. I'm placing my trust and my reliance on you. Even if everything doesn't make sense, I know this to be true about you. And so as you go to the table, are there temptations that you're fighting that you need the Lord's not only forgiveness of, but empowerment for? Are there tests that you need his guidance and power to persevere through? Are there trials that you're experiencing Pain that you need to feel his presence? Are there attacks that you are um, needing his victory? And we go to the table, it's the, it's the confession of those things where we don't, and it's the Father, my prayer, save us from these things. We need you. We need your guidance. We need your power. And all of these things are found in him. His power, his love, his graciousness and compassion, and ultimately your forgiveness as well.